Don't pay retail for your diamond engagement ring or gift. Come to CleanOrigin.com. Founded by a leading family in the diamond industry for more than a century, we're experts in lab-grown diamonds because that's all we do. Clean Origin, the only diamond jewelers who give you a 100-day, no-questions-asked return on your purchase. Head to CleanOrigin.com or one of our retail stores and mention code RADIO10 for 10% off your purchase. That's CleanOrigin.com, code RADIO10. For several months of the year, the Central Sierra Snow Lab looks like a winter wonderland. Over 60 feet of snow fell this past winter at the lab, and our next guest was there to experience it all. Dr. Andrew Schwartz, lead scientist and station manager of the University of California, Berkeley, Central Sierra Snow Lab studies snowfall, snowpack, and the impact of climate change. He joins us now on the Weather Geeks podcast. Thank you for joining us on Weather Geeks. Thank you for having me on, Dr. Shepard. I'm really excited to be here to talk about snow and water and weather. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I want to get to all these magnificent totals, snow totals. But before we talk snow, I've got to talk how you became a weather geek. Uh, it's, it's kind of an unconventional story, to be honest. Um, I grew up on the front range of Denver, Colorado and, and southeastern metro area. So uh, we really got all kinds of different exciting weather out there. So, you know, in the winter, we'd get these wonderful upslope storms where I'd go out in the yard and pretend that I was... Uh, in Antarctica until I was soaking wet. My mom had to drag me back in. And then in the summer, we'd watch these big thunderstorms roll out east, of course. And my brother and I would actually sit on the back of the couch and watch out the front window as these storms approached and say, thunder and lightning, thunder and lightning make my dreams come true. Uh, in retrospect, I was I was destined to be in weather. But uh, as time went on, I kind of decided that I wasn't terribly interested in school. And so when I got done with high school, rather than going uh, into college for, for meteorology. I, I did some odds and ends jobs. I worked at a lumber yard. I, I did a little bit of freight delivery and then um, ran a, a small company uh, that did event promotion and production. So I was kind of all over the place, but I realized that I really uh, wanted a little bit of a, of a mental challenge again and, and to kind of be stimulated. And, and so I decided to go back to school and I kind of honed and hawed over what I wanted to do and then I realized that every day when I was getting off work, I'd immediately rush home and watch weather radar to figure out if storms were coming my way, if I could, you know, potentially intercept them and, and what the forecast was looking like because I was so into weather. Uh, so I went to Metro State University of Denver in, in Denver, Colorado, and got my, my undergraduate degree in meteorology um, and became an associate scientist at the National Center for Atmospheric Research, where I worked on uh, winter weather impacts to aviation for, for a few years. Uh, and then I decided I, I wanted to really kind of engage in what my scientific interests were. Um, I had a great time at NCAR, but I was more interested in doing my own thing. And uh, so I uh, embarked on my PhD in a country that most people associate with snow, which is Australia, right? Yeah, everyone thinks of Australia when they think of snow, um, but <laughs> right. it is yeah. very, very important to Australia and their agriculture and their economy. Uh, so I went down there to do my PhD and, and worked on how wildfire burn scars affect our snowpack and our water resources. Uh, and that was a, a wonderful four years. Um, and, and then uh, as that approached, uh, as I approached the end of my PhD, I found this job opening that somehow managed to have every one of my bizarre skills listed as something they wanted to see, uh, which was for the UC Berkeley Central Sierra Snow Lab. And they had 
of course, you know, hydrology listed. They had uh, various bits of ramp writing and things like that as things they wanted. But they also wanted you to be able to fix small engines and manage a facility and, uh, you know, be able to drive larger trucks and things like that so that you could actually uh, develop this facility further. And so I went, oh, my goodness, this is me to a T. And my wife said, if you don't apply to this, I'm going to smack <laughs> you upside the head. And so. Uh, I applied and got it, and I've been up here for the last two and a half years, and now I don't have to pretend I'm in these big storms anymore when I'm out playing in my yard. I get to be actually out in doing fun scientific work. So that's kind of how I came to be where yeah. I am. That's a, that's a very different of our various weather geek trajectories that we hear, but certainly within the bowl. Let me tell you a little bit about Dr. Schwartz. Uh, as you heard, since April 2021, he's been the lead scientist and station manager at the UC Berkeley Central Sierra Snow Lab. He spent some time at NCAR, which is the National Center for Atmospheric Research in Boulder, Colorado. Uh, and as you also heard, got his bachelor's degree in meteorology from Metropolitan State University and his PhD in atmospheric sciences from the University of Queensland. So certainly someone with an interesting background. You know, I have to admit, I, I've, I've been around this field for some time. I'm I, I know the sort of nooks and crannies of weather and climate, but I am not as familiar with the Central Sierra Snow Lab. So give us a 101 on what it is, why it exists, and so forth. Yeah, I, I mean, to be honest, before I took this position, I wasn't entirely sure what the Snow Lab was either. Um, realistically speaking, the Snow Lab was built in 1946 by the Army Corps of Engineers and the then Weather Bureau, which is now the National Weather Service. Uh, it was one of three labs to develop developed to really look at uh, snow hydrology, hydrology in the West, because during World War II, we kind of realized that we didn't have enough information on how snow impacts our environment, how it works. Uh, and so we really set forth uh, with these three labs to try to identify that. So uh, that program uh, was run for eight years. And then uh, effectively, over the last several decades, the other two la uh, labs have gone away and this one has stuck around. It has changed hands a few times. Um, but it's, it's remained in its goals of measuring daily weather and doing research. And so now it's managed by UC Berkeley. It is owned, however, by the Forest Service. Uh, and we are one of a few sites in the world that do manual measurements of snowfall to get things like snow to liquid ratio, uh, to make sure that someone's on site 24 seven, if anybody, if any project needs the help. Uh, so we're, we're kind of rare and unique in, in that regard and, we have really developed a lot of technology, a lot of physical understanding of the snowpack processes up here in the last 75 years or so of our existence. And it's great to see a new group of people come in over the last couple of years and really start to get excited about the lab and the work that it's been doing. So um, it's it's kind of unique in the way that it was developed, but it's been here in snow and weather science for the last seven years or seven decades, excuse me, and, and has been a great part of it. You mentioned that you're unique in that you're doing manual snow measurements. So talk to us a little bit about what that is and how it differs from how it's normally done if you're doing it in a unique manner. Yeah, absolutely. So oftentimes uh, it's it's easiest for us to put re remote stations out, automated weather stations, right? Where we can put them out in the field and they do their own thing and we get to limited data back to us, you know, over cell networks or whatever it might be. Um, and it, at those types of stations, oftentimes we'll have um, uh, precipitation gauges that collect both snow and rain and either have a weighing mechanism in them or something like that that allows us to determine the water equivalent. But what that doesn't actually tell us with snowfall 
is how much fell, what the depth is from of that new snowfall. Uh, and that's vitally important when we talk about things like impacts to transportation, because we can get really a really dense three inches of snow, or if the weather's a little bit colder, if the snow to liquid ratio is higher, then we can see you know potentially 12 inches, and that really kind of gums things up on our, our interstates. Uh, and so what we do is twice a day at 8 a.m. and 4 p.m., we go out, and it's the simplest process that anyone can do with their house. Uh, we have a board that we set on top of the snow, Snow accumulates on top of that, and at 8 a.m., 4 p.m. every day, we go out with a, a ruler and put it in there and figure out how much has fallen over that period. Uh, in the last few years, we've also started to measure the liquid water equivalent of that, so we can get snow. So we'll go out with a, a clear hollow tube, stick it down into the snow, pull out a sample, and then wait to get the amount of water in too. So um, we're quite rare in that we have those records going all the way back realistically to 1946 and here on Donner Summit they actually go all the way back to 1878 for snowfall uh, snowfall accumulation and maximum snow depth so uh, we have quite a robust data set of these variables that are measured in very few other places and you mentioned Donner Summit but for our listeners who aren't familiar with the geography Give us a sort of a relative geographical lesson of where you're actually located. So we're in what, depending on who you talk to, either is either considered the northern or central Sierra Nevada. Uh, but we're about three and a half hours um, northeast of the San Francisco Bay Area and about 45 minutes northwest of Lake Tahoe. Uh, we sit at an elevation of about 6,900 feet up here. Uh, and so... We're relatively close to a lot of larger uh, metropolitan areas, uh, but we don't see necessarily the same amount of traffic that they do. Uh, but the importance of where the lab is located, of course, is that so much of that snow that falls up here is used for the water resource in those areas uh, that are not not too far of a drive. When we come back, I want to get into what your typical day is like after the first break. Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. Delve into the shadows of the mind with Sleeping Dogs, a gripping murder mystery starring Academy Award winner Russell Crowe. Now available on digital. Crowe portrays an ex-homicide detective unraveling a brutal murder he can't recall. Uncovering secrets from his past, he learns a chilling truth. It's best to let sleeping dogs lie. 
visit sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery to watch Sleeping Dogs, now on digital. That's sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery. Look around. You can find cars like these on AutoTrader. New cars, used cars, electric cars, maybe even flying cars. Okay, no flying cars, but as soon as they get invented, they'll be on AutoTrader. Just you wait. AutoTrader. And we are back on the Weather Geeks podcast. I'm Dr. Marshall Shepard from the University of Georgia, and I'm speaking with Dr. Andrew Schwartz. And I, I am curious because I, I thought that you were, you know, not necessarily, you know, right around the corner from San Francisco or, or a large city, and you're at a significant elevation. So I'm curious, one, um, where do you live? I mean, and you don't have to give me the specifics, but are you in the sort of general area of, and you trek up the, the mountain every day or do you live up on the mountain? Or, so I'm curious about these sort of details and I bet some of our listeners are too. And then I'm curious about what your typical day is. Yeah. Um, it's to answer your first question, I have lived at the snow lab for the last two and a half years. I actually just moved out wow. about two weeks ago. Um, the reason why it was a number of factors, of course, I moved back to the U.S. during COVID and, and the Lake Tahoe region was the hottest real estate market at the time. And and so we were, I was kind of having a hard time figuring out where uh, we were going to live and, and everything. And uh, my my boss, the director of the lab at the time, Rob Rue, said, you know, all these other field stations have live-in managers. Why don't you do the same thing? And I'm like, well... You know, in an area where it's not uncommon to get three or even four feet of snow in an eight-hour period, that kind of makes things a lot easier. I can walk out my front door into the measuring site rather than having to try to commute at that. Uh, so, yeah, I've been living up here for the last two and a half years. Uh, the lab is located about a quarter of a mile up an unplowed road. Uh, so, in the wintertime, we park at the bottom. It's, it, depending on the conditions of the snowpack, we're either uh, snowshoeing, which is the most common, Occasionally, we'll use our snowmobile or snowcat to get in. The snowcat's typically used if we have a lot of really deep, fresh, fluffy powder, uh, and we have heavy equipment or something to that effect. But yeah, now, now I've moved out in the last two weeks and and only moved about five minutes down the road. Still want to be local, but but uh, I'm up here <laughs> to make sure that I can access the lab and be here when I need to for the snow. Uh, and and in terms of my average day, you know, living at the lab made it pretty simple. Um, you know, waking up, coming downstairs, the, the first thing I kind of do is, uh, look at the forecast as I think a lot of us do kind of pour over the weather models and look at what's coming in, um, timing on that. And then, uh, at 8 a.m., as I mentioned before, I'll, I'll trek outside or maybe around 745 to make sure that I'm there at 8 a.m. And just walk around, um, to the study site here. It's about not too far, 60 meter walk or so, but uh, walk back there to do the first measurement of the day, clear off the board, and then um, come back inside and start working through emails and working on various research projects. Uh, and then there is generally some type of instrumentation maintenance that I'm doing. So we have uh, a number of 30-foot tall towers here. Uh, they're not super tall, but they are platform. The reason why they're 30 feet tall is because our maximum snowpack depth can be around 20 to 21 feet in the winter so we don't want our instruments of wow. course being buried um and so we um so that's part of it as well it's it's kind of unique because um i get to do the research i get to be up here in the snow with the instrumentation but we do have an operational component as well because we do put out forecasts and work with local agencies so uh 
yeah, that's that's kind of what the the normal day looks like is doing that morning measurement, looking through the forecast, kind of a hodgepodge of whatever is on the plate as far as instrumentation maintenance and going through and plotting up data. And then at 4 p.m. doing the final measurement for the day and maybe closing out with, uh, you know, returning some emails. So not too dissimilar, I think, from what a lot of people's schedules look like. It's just a very unique location. So the unique look uh, one that gets 20 feet of snowpack. <laughs> so, uh, you know, just for those who are listening, 20 feet, you know, a basketball goal, if you're familiar with basketball, I have a son that plays, it's 10 feet high. And so just uh, for those of you that need a reference point of what 20 feet of snowpack may look like. And I want to kind of pivot to that. Uh, this p- past winter was the second snowiest winter season on record. Uh, at what point did you realize this was a, a unique winter in terms of snowpack? Uh, and I guess over 60 feet of snow fell in, at the lab. Is that correct? Yeah, yeah. So we we had 754 inches of snowfall, um, which is uh, just shy of 63 feet, uh, which is about twice what we normally get, or or over twice actually, because on an average in an average year we get about 30 feet of snow. And, and so it was just absolutely remarkable to see that much snow. Uh, I think it really started to sink in how remarkable this winter was going to be um, when we got probably to mid to late February, because uh, I've had periods up here where we'll see big storms roll through and it might be for a week or two with the atmospheric rivers that come in and make landfall and dump a ton of moisture. Uh, but they... Prior to this year, they had kind of been infrequent. You know, we might get one a month or one every three weeks to that effect. And then this year, it was kind of like we got to, to mid-January or even the beginning of January, and just every bit of medium to long-term forecast said that we were just going to keep hitting camp. Uh, and, and it was very, very exciting. And, and so we got, you know, like I said, probably late February, I went, is this going to stop? When is this going to stop? Are we going to be getting snow like this, you know? well into May or, or even June or, or <laughs> how is this going to look? And uh, this, the snow lover in me was absolutely ecstatic to see how much was coming in. But the person that was out there having to shovel it off of our equipment was, you know, had tennis elbows in both his elbows. Uh, so there was a little bit of, of conflict within me every time I looked at the forecast. But it was uh, absolutely remarkable to live through what has become the second largest winter on record at the snow lab. Uh, with only the winter of 1951-1952, when we got 68 feet of snow uh, beating this one. So, and and I I will say, I'm not here to pat myself on the back, but at that time they had seven full-time staff members and it was only me this last winter. So uh, I was just very fortunate to be able to to make it through and unscathed. I mean, it's, that much snow seems like that there could be some safety issues though. I mean, you said you have 30 feet normally. I mean, were, were, were there any opportunities or chances that you were in danger in any way or harm's way? Uh, it, you know, we try to keep that to a minimum as much as possible. Um, the lab does do some backcountry work for, for snow surveys for the California Department of Water Resources. So there's, especially with these big types of winters, there are those avalanche concerns. Uh, we are very meticulous about making sure that when we do go out into the field, uh, we, we look at those. But here around the lab, you know, a lot of it just comes down to the weight of the snow. Yeah, uh, and locations around Mammoth, around Lake Tahoe. Uh, you know, there were news headlines talking about collapses of roofs um, and various other damage that were caused by the snowpack. We here at the lab had uh, our the stairs on the southern entrance become damaged. We had to replace those this summer. 
Um, and, and I guess the biggest kind of safety scare that I had was, um, you know, here in, in the Sierra Nevada in California, we get, we have that warm maritime climate. We get very dense snow, what we refer to as Sierra cement. Uh, but there was a period in February where we got this very light, powdery, almost champagne powder that I was familiar with Colorado, uh, snow that I think was 19 to one, uh, in terms of snow to liquid ratio or something like that. So very light, fluffy, and we got a lot of it over the course of two days And I stepped out, um, the front door at one point to go and measure it and stepped onto the snowpack with my big, uh, snowshoes and ended up sinking in up literally about to my eyeballs. And I went, maybe I should go get my imagine uh, my emergency <laughs> transponder just to be safe because this is something I haven't encountered yeah. before. So went and, and did that and uh, grabbed that and kind of, you know, knew that I had it with me in case I needed it, luckily. But that was kind of the biggest whoopsie that I, <laughs> I had over the winter. And, and other than that, I think, you know, it was really remarkable and kind of just a little bit of a concern was the, the snow lab here is, is, basically a three-story building. We have a, a walkout basement and then a, a main level of lab and then a third floor, which is uh, a couple of bedrooms for researchers to spend the night. And it was, the, the snowpack was up the third floor window. You could ski right into that third floor window. So to get in and out of the building easily, we actually had to dig down into the pack to get to the front door. And that was always a little bit interesting because after that point, when we first did it, you'd open up the front door that morning and have to shovel out another three or four feet of snow just to get out of the building. So it was it was unique. And and while at times it was a little bit unsafe, it wasn't to the point where it was. Now, when we come back, I will talk to Dr. Schwartz about climate connections, atmospheric rivers, and some of the other things that he thinks about when he's up there on the mountain. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Okay, picture this, it's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Okay, picture this, it's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. 
Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. And we are back on the Weather Geeks podcast. I'm Dr. Marshall Shepard from the University of Georgia, and I'm speaking with Dr. Andrew Schwartz from the UC Berkeley Central Sierra Snow Lab. We've talked about sort of what your day is like in the tremendous amounts of snowfall. You even mentioned atmospheric rivers, and I'd like for you to give our listeners and viewers a little 101 on what those atmospheric rivers are and why they're so important to the snowpack and precipitation in the Western U.S. in general. And then I'd like to get into a conversation about climate change, because it may be counterintuitive talking about all of these big snowfall numbers and snowpack numbers, and people say, well, what does that have to do with a warming climate? Uh, if anything. So let's start with the atmospheric rivers breakdown and then get into the discussion of the climate connection. Yeah, yeah. Um, As far as atmospheric rivers are concerned, you know, this is something that happens broadly all over the planet. Um, These are areas of of moisture, uh, kind of concentrated moisture in the atmosphere that really do resemble surface rivers uh, on the planet here. And they bring a lot of moisture to the mid-latitudes from around the equator, typically. And so we see a lot of the moisture that comes to the Western U.S. coming in the form of these atmospheric rivers, uh, the vast majority, actually. Uh, so realistically speaking, when we talk about water resources, especially in California, we typically talk about, you know, maybe three or five of these atmospheric rivers making or breaking an entire season. Um, and, and when we speak with dam operators, you know, we, they can pinpoint these individual events that occur that really help to replenish their reservoirs and and help us with our water resources so these atmospheric rivers you know they don't just impact california they're all up and down the western port uh west coast of the u.s they're all up and down realistically the west coast of australia and south america and, and all over the world um but they're really important as sources of moisture transport and you know on, on an average year we might have three to five this year just in california alone we had 16 uh, which gives an indication of just how wild they are and they can range from you know, maybe a, a few showers, a little bit um, of wind to uh, kind of this category five uh, storm where you're getting very, very heavy rainfall to the point where you're worried about flash flooding. You're getting trees that are becoming unrooted in these very strong winds. Um, you know, this year there was a lot of discussion about them kind of being uh, the, the West Coast equivalent of a hurricane in California because they do come with a lot of destruction a lot of the time because they can be very strong storm systems. Um, that incorporate. So that's what we have as far as m- the way most of our moisture makes it onto shore here in California and Oregon and Washington, even up in British Columbia. Um, with that said, we are seeing shifts in these atmospheric rivers. We are seeing warming in them. And um, the, the people down at the UC San Diego uh, Scripps Center for Western Water and Weather Extreme, CW3E, um, do a lot of work on these. And they've shown that with climate change coming up, we're going to see fewer of these atmospheric rivers, but we're going to see a broader range in, in what they are, more extremes effectively. And so as we see this progression of climate change and as our, our climate continues to change, we are going to see our water resources become a lot more unpredictable here in the Western United States. So, uh, you know, one of the things that I've, I've seen some literature on on sort of connections between warming climate, Clausius-Clapeyron relationships, and snowfall, but it's very counterintuitive to people. 
are, are from your your lens as a snow expert uh, i mean is it incorrect to say that a warming climate could poss- possibly you know lead to these sort of or not lead to but it contribute to these massive snow dumps that you saw uh, because of the juicier atmosphere or is that is that not conclusive in the literature at this point it, it first I, I agree with you completely it's very counterintuitive you don't typically think warm temperatures and more snow um with that being said you know we do have more moisture in the atmosphere um, as the atmosphere warms. And we do see additional moisture in these storm systems as a result. And so when we do get these large snowfall events, there is going to be a climate signal in there that likely means we're getting more snow. Um, You know, as far as the literature is concerned, doing these attribution studies is a great way to, to kind of pull that out, right? We want to see what the event was like and then try to pull out the climate signal to see how much of a difference there is. And I think this last winter is going to be a great time and a great, uh, you know, kind of event to focus on to do that. Um, and I'm curious to see uh, if you know, what we get out of it in that regard. But even though it's counterintuitive, it it there is some truth to it. Of, of course, it's to a point, right? We're not going to warm to the point where we're above freezing and continue to get snow. So there is kind of that diminishing returns line where eventually we warm to a point where we get more rain, but we are seeing stronger events uh, because of the additional moisture. So, so yeah, and, and absolutely, I, I I completely agree with you, and I'm I'm familiar with the the literature as well. But how do you explain? And I've, I've, I'm I'm asking because I want to pick up some tips from you because I I have to testify before Congress and talk to people in Washington as perhaps you would do as well. How do you reconcile the arguments when people ask you, well, I thought you said, you just said we're getting more snowfall because of climate warming, but then there are some years where the same climate scientists will say we have less snowpack because of climate warming. So how do we reconcile those two sides of the coin? And I, I deal with it here in the Southeast when we talk about the more intense rainstorms and the That's drought. Well, and, and this is one of the, the really difficult things uh, to address realistically. And, and when we talk especially about, you know, say water resources in the southwestern United States and the Colorado River Basin and things like that. You know, we do still have these large events, but the overall trend is drying in years of drought. We're talking about, you know, the, the recent literature has kind of coined this the mega drought. We're talking about uh, a drought in the western U.S. that's unprecedented uh, precedented, uh, in terms of the last 1,200 years, and we're now in year 23 of it effectively, uh, or, or 24, depending. I, I can't remember exactly, but uh, you know, we do see these big storms. We do have the occasional big year that that is going to be more so related to, you know, weather or climate being different things. But if when we look at the overall trend, we are seeing drying in a lot of the region uh, that we talk about in the southwestern U.S. And one big storm or one big year doesn't fix that because it's still a trend that that keeps going once we get past that. Yeah, and I think it's a similar story in other parts of the U.S. where there the drought conditions are there, but yet when we have these big rainstorms, the intensity in them are tremendous. We just had some significant rains here in the Atlanta area, uh, three inch per hour type rainfall, which uh, you know our our infrastructure is just not designed for that type of a rain intensity. So there was significant flooding in in Atlanta. Where can people? I mean, I, I mean it's just such a cool location. This what you do is so cool. 
Are there webcams or places that people can go and find out more about what's going on up there or places on the on social media that they can follow you? Yeah, absolutely. And I'm, I'm glad you brought that up, actually. We're, we're really excited. Um, just a week ago, we launched our new live stream webcam up here. It's a it's a 180 degree hemispheric view of, of I can't say all of the site, but most of it. Um, and, and so that's part of a new sky to stream measurement system that we've installed this summer. So 30 new instruments and this new camera and a lot of the data from that's going to be live on our website and people can find that at cssl.berkeley.edu. Uh, so we're going to have that live cam on there. We're going to have a page devoted entirely to um, the weather conditions that are going on up here. And we also have a page devoted to the broader snowfall impacting the region. Uh, and then also we are on platforms like Twitter and Facebook. Um, we are typically at UCB underscore CSSL. Uh, I believe on Facebook where you see the dot CSSL. Uh, but we do update those accounts every single morning when we get snowfall to let people know. Uh, those of us that are snowboard and ski junkies find that particularly useful. Uh, so, uh, yeah. And, and anytime that anybody wants to reach out and talk snow, I'm always willing to do so because it is my life and I love to do it. And, uh, yeah, always happy to provide information and our data to anybody that asks all right, all right. Now, the, the, you gave us a couple of the lab uh, social media handles. Are, are you personally on any of these that people can follow you? Yes, actually. So uh, if if people are interested in following, following me, although I'll be honest, I haven't posted a lot lately <laughs> because last last winter was spent uh, updating my accounts quite a bit uh, with, with Snowfall News. Sure. <laughs> but uh, on Twitter, I'm at snow underscore doc and doc is uh, has a zero in the middle where the uh, O is supposed to be. And uh, so that's the primary place that I, I get a lot of my work done. I'm also on LinkedIn. Um, so it's just Andrew Schwartz, PhD, okay. if people want to contact on LinkedIn. And those are primarily the two big platforms that I use. Well, I think that, you know, we're, we're recording this in October, but we're getting into the cool season. And so I think many of our listeners and viewers may want to kind of follow along with what's going on there to see how it compares this winter with your extraordinary winter uh, from 2022-2023. We'll see how 2023-2024 hands out for you. Thank you, Andrew, for joining us on the Weather Geeks podcast. Thank you so much for having me, Dr. Shepard. I really enjoyed it. I'm Dr. Marshall Shepard from the University of Georgia, and continue to listen to us. We're out there on all podcast platforms, and you can also find us streaming on the Weather Channel streaming channel. I'm Dr. Shepard. See you later.